0: God, I come to you this morning in prayer, encouraged and strengthened by the text that is before us. We thank you for your word. God, counting myself as no great speaker, I pray that you would help each and every one of us today to hear the words of our Lord Jesus, to hear his voice and not the voice of a man. Hide this preacher behind the cross. In Christ's name, amen. This morning we return to our study in Ecclesiastes, to chapter four. I trust that you're finding this work to be profitable. We know that it is profitable because all inspired scripture is profitable. And I trust that you are feasting on the choice nourishment found in the preacher's observations and analysis of life under the sun. Many people think of the book of Ecclesiastes and they think it to be a cynical outlook which will surely leave its readers discouraged and disheartened. However, as we have stepped into these pages, we are finding that this is not the case. The preacher, as Solomon calls himself, Is rather honest at times we have said brutally honest and to keep us from discouragement to keep us from miserable minds he shows us the hopelessness and vanity of life under the Sun and he also anticipates the hope of God and the gospel and I hope you are seeing these things as I am we saw this last time Solomon's honesty about life and his anticipation of the gospel and the goodness of God, when we considered chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, you're right there. It says, And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. And I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is there is a time for every purpose and for every work so the preacher again is honest with us about even the despicable state of righteousness and justice under the sun being replaced by wickedness and by iniquity but he looks to god as the righteous judge of all and he points us to find our hope in god as well the preacher has also reminded us that As human beings, we are made in the image of God and we have eternity set in our hearts. We have in us a God-given sense of justice and of right. Although that be marred by the fall of man into sin, each person still desires to see the scale of justice stay balanced. We decry injustice and we oppose unfairness in our hearts. These things he's brought up in the previous verses. And today we come to chapter four and these themes continue for us. The preacher returns again to consider several places under the sun where we find injustice and wickedness. He considers in verses one through three, oppression. He considers in verses 4, 5, and 6, envy. He considers in 7 through 12, solitude. So we begin in chapter 4. We'll read the first three verses and we'll work through the chapter as we continue. My plan is to finish. So hold on. Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 3. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed. And they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors. There was power. But they had no comfort. Wherefore I praise the dead. Which are already dead. More than the living. Which are yet alive. Yea better than he. Better is he than they both. Which has not yet been. Who have not seen the evil work. That is done under the sun. Solomon. As already addressed in chapter 3, the corruption of justice and sin, where righteousness should be found. Now he comes to another vice of humanity, oppression. In considering here oppression, and in the next verses envy, the preacher puts his finger on a great flaw in fallen man. We should see ourselves as part of the whole. But instead, each man sees only himself and fights for his own advancement, self over all others. Where there should be found virtue in mankind, we see rather vice. This is the antithesis Of what should be, and this is the antithesis of what Paul points us to in Ephesians and in Philippians when he describes not seeking one's self, but seeking after the good of others. And oppression is found. In his sermon on self-deceit, Butler called oppression the greatest display of detestable wickedness. He gives clear understanding, clear insight into oppression when he goes on to say that it's easy to condemn and we should condemn oppression, but it's difficult to define. Exactly where is the line? What, what is the demarcation? What is the boundary? When does normal and right human behavior cross over into Oppression. The nature of oppression is not easily recognized. And that leaves men room to make judgments of what is okay and what is not okay. Men being depraved, when we make such judgments, we have room to deceive ourselves. Especially when we are ourselves out of bounds on either side of the line. How many men are oppressors telling themselves that they're in the right, that they are just in their dealings with their fellow man? On the other side, how many judge normal human relationships and slanderously label them oppression? Businessmen who rightly seek to find labor at a good price, that's what businessmen do, that's what businessmen should do, they rightly seek to find labor at a good price, but they may deceive themselves when they have crossed the line into the oppression and the keeping down of their workers. They are oppressors while professing themselves to be men of integrity. Or How many have we seen in our day calling a good thing evil? Whether it be a worker earning an agreed-upon wage or a wife dutifully submitted to her husband and someone will call that oppression. When every job doesn't pay the same wage or when hard work and know-how Cannot be rewarded because it's considered oppressive to others who have worked half heartedly or who have produced poor quality. Does a shoe or clothing brand cross over into oppression when they hire workers in a foreign country who here would be considered underage? Where's the line? When do you cross over from giving a person in need a job to slave labor? Or when a wife is serving her husband, when when she brings him meals, when she cleans his clothes and keeps his house and cares for his children, is that woman oppressed, as many feminists would claim? Where is the boundary between a loving marriage and an oppressive relationship? Oppression is difficult to define with precision but we all know that it's a great evil and the preacher reminds us that oppression is in this world and we see it we do see it and it's a sad condition the preacher points out the tears that come the tears of the oppressed And he sounds an alarm by saying, behold, the tears of the oppressed, behold. And this sadness colors the canvas. And Solomon adds more, more darkness to this view on the side of the oppressor. There's power. What a grim picture that's painted of oppression under the sun then we add to the depth of the darkness of this scene twice repeated there is no comforter they have no comforter considering life under the sun no comforter is power. men who might feel empathy toward the oppressed are powerless to give any relief, powerless to help at all. There's no comfort. And there's no comfort coming from the oppressor. What a good time for us to pause before we lose heart. Let me me just say, it's not my notes, but many times we see those who decry oppression become the oppressor. Now, I probably already made some of you mad by mentioning feminism. Let me go ahead and do a better job. The feminist movement, and I'm not talking about every woman. I'm talking about the feminist movement does not seek equality. It seeks to oppress men. I mean, the oppressed become the oppressor. So we, in observing with the preacher life under the sun and oppression in this life, in this world, we might be tempted to lose heart, but we must remember that while there is under the sun no comforter, the God of heaven does offer comfort. Jesus taught us that those who mourn are blessed and they shall be comforted. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is the great comforter. And we're encouraged by knowing that God will rescue the oppressed. As he has demonstrated when Israel was freed from bondage in Egypt. And that is a picture of those oppressed by sin being freed in Jesus Christ. But remember, as we work through Ecclesiastes, that the preacher is only looking under the sun, only observing life under the sun, and he finds no comfort. Only oppression and abuse. And the case is such that he determines when looking under the sun, it's better to be dead than it is to be alive. It's better to be dead than to see all this oppression. And better still, To have never been born. To have never been a witness to the tearful sorrow of the downtrodden. This brings us to verses 4 through 6. We find a companion to oppression. Envy. Jealousy. Ecclesiastes 4 verses 4 through 6. Again, I consider all toil or labor and every skillful work. It is the result of rivalry with his neighbor or the result of envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit, striving after the wind. Verse five, the fool folded his hands together and eateth his own flesh. He says, better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. The preacher notes here that men do not work Just to provide what is needed. We are motivated by envy. Paul instructs us in Romans 12. That we should rejoice with those who rejoice. That we should weep with those who weep. We should be happy for others who receive good things. But there is something in the heart of man. Something broken in us. Which seeks to compete. Not only to keep up with the Joneses to overtake the Joneses, to surpass the Joneses. I've had many jobs that I was instructed, don't talk to the other employees about what you make. Don't talk about wages with the other employees. Why? Because men and women, we are a jealous bunch. There There are rules, even if unwritten, That we do not publicize the giving of each member in a church. Why? Because we are full of envy. And that leads to strife and fighting. You make more than me and I can't stand that. Or you gave more than me or you gave less than whatever it is. I can't stand that. You think you're better. Envy, jealousy. It's not enough for us to have our needs met. It's not sufficient that we say with the psalmist, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. We need to make sure that it's fair or that it seems fair to me from my perspective. Remember the parable of our Lord about those workers who were paid a good wage. They agreed upon the wage for a day's work. They were hired. And then later in the day, others were hired, those who would not work during the hottest part of the day, those who did not produce the same quantity, and they received at the end of the day the same pay. And the workers hired early in the morning became jealous. They became envious. It did not matter that they were paid What they agreed to. It did not matter. That their needs were met. It only mattered. That someone else was getting a better deal. And we can't stand for somebody. To get a better deal. Than we get. Envy. Solomon comes to the conclusion. Envy is so prevalent. That that all that gets done. Is motivated by envy, by rivalry. And this too is empty vapor. This is trying to catch the wind. The preacher, in pointing out to us this oppression and this envy that we find in the world under the sun, he points us to two responses. Two responses to oppressive and envious life under the sun. And we have in verses five and six, the foolish sluggard. And in, in, in verses seven and eight, the lonely miser. Verse five, the fool foldeth his hands together. These are not the hands ready for work. This one who the preacher calls a fool considers the tears of the oppressed and the power of the oppressor and the envy and strife of the world and says, I quit. He looks at the success of his neighbor. I will never have what they have. I'll never get there. So I won't even try. So he folds his hands, a posture of relaxation and rest. Certainly not a posture of work and prosperity and productivity. Oh, how we have seen this reaction, the folding of the hands in our country in recent years. Tell a man that he's oppressed. Amplify the envy that he has for his neighbor. Then provide a program, a plan where he can stay home and be lazy. And that's exactly what he will do. How many times have we heard business owners say, we can't hire good help. Nobody wants to work because there's too much folding of the hands. What a sinful and shameful state. The scripture teaches us that a man who who doesn't work shouldn't eat. Proverbs tells us that idleness is a robber. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. See, he uses the same picture there, the folding of the hands. And poverty comes upon you like a robber. And need, want, comes to you like an armed man. Here in Ecclesiastes, we see this folding of the hands. It's accompanied by this phrase, he eateth his own flesh, or he consumes his own flesh. Sounds terrible. What is this? Well, this is the natural progression. When a man stops working, he starts declining. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. When a lazy man folds his hands, atrophy begins to set in. With no activity, he withers. He wastes away. He deteriorates. Prove the truth of this by looking back. In our recent history with the global pandemic, those who sat on the couch and did nothing, were they stronger at the end of the pandemic or weaker? Were they more stable? Were they more healthy? Or was their flesh consumed by their idleness, by laziness? What an awful reaction it is to the injustices under the sun What a terrible response to the oppressor and to the jealous in the world to be lazy, to fold the hands. Proverbs 22, 13 says this of the lazy man that he will not work because he says there's a lion in the streets. If I go out there, I will be killed in the street. He says here in Ecclesiastes, verse six, it's better to have little it's better to have little than to have much i'd rather have not enough and peace rather than have enough with labor and strife he mistakes the lazy lack of movement for peace but in his sloth he does not find true lasting peace only vanity only chasing after the wind. The preacher shows us this disgraceful, sinful response to oppression and envy under the sun. Then beginning in verse seven, he shows us another response, not the lazy man, but he tells us the complete opposite, but still sinful. This this response to oppression and envy evokes sadness. It's the solitude. Let's read verses seven and eight. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone and there is not a second. It means there's one person. There's not another person. There's a man with no spouse, no dependent. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother. Yet there is no end to all his Labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good. This also is vanity. It is a sore travail. In response to injustice under the sun, the previous man folded his hands in lazy slumber. Now this man has no end to his work. There's no time, no time to take a wife. If we speak of a lady, no time to take a husband. There's no room in life for family, for children. All that remains is work, work, work. Rather than lying down, this man goes at his employment with everything. And again, we can can testify to the truth of the preacher's statements because all of us know someone like this. Some of us are someone like this. There's such a thing as focus for a time that doesn't allow other pursuits. I think of a man who, who may want to be a doctor or a lawyer who says, I'm going to put put off taking a wife to finish my study, to complete my training. But Solomon's talking about a person whose entire life is consumed. Not just a temporary focus, but an ongoing tunnel vision. This person putting on the blinders of greed or pride or jealousy and blocking out anything except work. Some of you might think, well surely this is the answer. If the lazy man was sinful for holding his hand, folding his hands and and for doing nothing, then the answer must be this workaholic. The, The workaholic must have the remedy. The answer to the lazy lazy man's disease must be this. But if we think that, we'd be wrong. Verse 8 tells us that this is no cure. Even with no end to his labor, his eye is not satisfied. Satiated. No matter how much he has, it's never enough. Never, never enough. He doesn't even stop to ask, why am I doing this? For whom am I laboring? He'll work and he'll save until he meets his death, And there he will discover that this too is vanity. These are two extremes presented by the preacher to serve as a warning to us. Warning signs, guardrails, if you will, to show us a better way. Christians, we should seek A balanced life where we toil where we conquer but where we're not consumed by our work he shows us at the beginning of verse 9 that having a helper a companion in life is better I I so appreciate I hope you do too that, that the preacher here Throughout these texts that we've been studying Says this is better than this He's giving us comparisons And here he says in verse 9 Two are better than one Because they have a good reward for their labor For if they fall The one will lift up his fellow But woe to him that is alone when he falls For he hath not another to help him up again Again if two lie together Then they have heat But how can one be worn alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Here in this text, and we're going to work through these so you can follow right along verses 19, 11, and 12. The preacher gives us four gains when we're not alone. You may think of a married couple. You may think of a family. But there's application beyond marriage these gains of not being alone may be found in business, they may be found in church ministry, even in a simple household work. But we all know that it is more enjoyable to work with someone else than it is to work alone. Here we have four benefits of having a partner in life and labor. First, he says, together you have a better reward for your labor. You have a better reward for your labor together. Now we can make application in two ways. First, two workers can get more done and therefore produce more profit so better reward better profit for the work but secondly having someone to share the reward with like a spouse or children increases the enjoyment of the reward so even when there's not more profit the profit is more enjoyable Two have a better reward than one, two are better than one. Secondly, together, you have someone to help when you fall. Now this would have been in this day universally understood in the literal and physical sense. Traveling in rough terrain often led to a fall even among the young and the healthy. And in some areas, some treacherous, Areas, some dangerous paths. A fall might even mean death. Perhaps instant death, but but even death by attack or death by exposure. This also has application not only physically but figuratively. We see Often and wisely when churches send out missionaries or church planters, they don't send out one man, they send out two or three. Now, I thought of this as, as some of us are instantly thinking, hey, wait a minute, didn't we send Wilson alone all by himself? What have we done? Two is better than one. But well, here's the thing, we sent Wilson to be with Scott and Caleb and the others there. He's not a woman. And I'm so glad that he's not a woman because two is better than one. We remember when Jesus sent out his disciples. When they went out, he sent them in pairs. Two is better than one. Facing difficulties in business, in ministry, in marriage, in all things, difficulties are more tolerable with a partner. When I perform... A wedding. I often pray for that union of the couple that it will make their burdens seem halved. That's hard to say. I don't think I pronounce halved right. <laughs> but I often pray that their burdens would seem half because now there's two instead of one, and this is the principle on which we base that prayer. Thirdly, together you have more heat. This is pretty straightforward. A person might freeze to death alone, but it's better you're better able to cope with the cold when there's another to add warmth. Together, you're stronger. Fourthly, you're stronger when you stand against an enemy. Enemies abound, and a person alone will have blind spots. Two are better than one. When I think two are better than one, when being attacked by an enemy, I think of them standing back to back, better able to see, better able to fend off the attacks of whatever enemy might come against you. Two are better than one. And he ends with three cord, a three-fold cord is not quickly broken. Three is an even stronger alliance. Now, when we think of three being a stronger alliance, we're certainly not talking about marriage. That's not how God designed it. We can apply that to family. We can apply that in other areas. Three, together, are greater than the sum of their parts. And the preacher illustrates this with a braided strap made up of three strands, which is not easily broken. In verses 13 and 14, the preacher turns our attention to honor If we find only vanity and vapor in oppression and envy and laziness and endless labor, what about honor? What about the place of a king? Verse 13, better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. For out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. For most of God's people, honor of this type is never within our grasp. Most of us maintain a, a lowly place while the sinner rises to places of respect, but there are exceptions. Surely Solomon knew of exceptions. His own father was a lowly shepherd boy who was exalted to the throne of Israel and we know of people in our day in our time who are lifted to prominence from a base start don't these make great stories in, in this the movie you'd like to see and this is quite a story the preacher introduces for us This old and foolish king proves himself to be foolish because he will not be admonished. He's forgotten how to take advice. He no longer will receive instruction. And this is both the cause and the proof of his foolishness. Charles Bridges said, a man who has no counsel from his own stores and refuses to receive it from another has an undoubted claim to the character of a fool. Charles Spurgeon, who came along years later, said a man who refuses the thought, a man who refuses to use the thoughts of another proves that he has no thoughts of his own. What I hear Christians say, I don't read. I give him that. A man who refuses to use the thoughts of another proves he has no thoughts of his own. This foolish old king gave credence to these sayings. He gave credence to the saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> you couldn't teach him anything. I, I hope that I can still take correction and be admonished as I grow older. You know, I wrote that, and I have it written right here, and that is my hope. And then this thought comes over me. You're not old yet. I'm not. Don't argue with (laughs) me. But how am I now at taking correction, at receiving instruction, at, at being admonished? This foolish old king who would not be admonished wouldn't be king for long. There's a young man who rises from prison. Commentators have speculated the reason why this young person is in prison. Did he steal a loaf of bread to satisfy his hungry belly? Did he wind up in pauper's jail because of the indebtedness of his family? Whatever the reason, prison was no deterrent to this young man's rise to the throne. He takes the throne from the old foolish king. Now that's where that's where the movie ends, right? That's where the credits roll. That's where the victorious music comes to play. That's where we all walk out feeling satisfied that the old fool went down and that the young person went to the top. But Solomon after letting us float here for just a moment, just a brief moment at this height, he quickly brings us down. And it's abrupt. Verse 15, I consider all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. There is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Even this new young king will grow old himself and he will leave his kingdom too. He calls him a second here. He'll leave it to a second, a a child or heir to the throne, a person who will stand in the king's place. And Solomon's telling us this too is part of this weary go round of life. There's no end to the cycle. There's no end to old foolish kings and there's no end to youth and ambition. But youth will yield to years. Ambition yields to complacency. The same crowd who cheered when the new king took the throne will cheer for the next king. Crowds are fickle. I came across this quote from Oliver Cromwell, maybe some of you know it. When he rose to power in England, the crowds cheered. Cromwell is quoted as saying, do not trust the cheering. Those very persons would shout as much if I were going to be hanged can't trust the crowd. We saw that played out in the life of our Lord. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the cheering throngs shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What great praise they gave. They called him the king of Israel. They laid palm branches before him. But only a few short days later, those same voices were shouting, As loudly, if not more loudly, crucify him and give us Barabbas. You can't trust the crowd. And in the end, Solomon pronounces this now familiar judgment. Surely this is also vanity and striving after the wind. So once again, we're reminded of the vacuous nature of life under the sun, it's empty. Temporary enjoyments, momentary pleasures, but nothing of lasting value. No net profit. So, what's the application for us today to take from this text? Applications may be many and they may be broad, but I think a few should stand out for us. Christian brothers and sisters, when by God's decree we are taken down a path of oppression, where we are being oppressed, let us live exemplary lives. Showing how Christians stand in hard times. Let us always follow after our great example who himself knew oppression and injustice and grief. And if by God's good pleasure, we're able to be in a place of power during our stay, let us be liberators rather than oppressors. Let us lift up those who need. Secondly, in response to the envy and jealousy in this dog-eat-dog world, let us neither respond with lazy idleness nor with unbridled busyness. Let us seek to live balanced lives. You know that's the hard part, right? Balance is hard. Extreme in either ditch in, in either on either side of the road is easy. Balance is hard. We must live balanced lives. Thirdly, we must remember that two are better than one. And a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Two are better than one. And we're reminded in this to fulfill our duties as church members. Being physically present and being fully engaged. Now some of you need to hear this. Some of you are not physically present. You'll hear this electronically. That's not honoring the Lord's day. That's not, well what it is, is forsaking the assembling of ourselves, which is commanded that we should not be. Some of you are here physically, but you're not fully engaged. Some of you need to say, hey, I have been I've been a, a visitor, I've been hanging out long enough. It's time to become a member of this church. It's time to contribute. It's time to, to become a, a worker. What, what happens to coals from a fire when they're separated and laid out individually? They quickly cool. And the fire goes out. As a matter of fact, that's what we do, right? When we're leaving a fire, you don't want it to get out of control. What do you do? You spread out the coals and they quickly cool and the fire goes out. But when those coals are kept together, when they're heaped up in a pile, the fire remains and the warmth can be felt much longer. Christians, God didn't save us to be loners. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. The Bible knows nothing of this. The Bible knows of every Christian belonging to a church. We, we hear some foolish things. How foolish it is that anyone would think that the Christian life is to be lived monastically or in isolation from others. How foolish it is for some to think that a minister of God does not need the help and companionship of a godly wife when God said it's not good for man to be alone. You can see that. And you can agree with that. Yeah, we're not to be monks. And it is not good for man to be alone. Then Christian, how can you withdraw and isolate yourself from the body? Let us remember the encouragement of Paul in Ephesians 4 verse 16 when he says that we are the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The application of this text may not be easy but it's true and it's right. And the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the brutal honesty of the preacher. We thank you that even this often neglected book of Ecclesiastes is in agreement and in accord with the rest of your revealed will. God, we pray that you apply these things to us. Keep us in your care.